Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally. Voidware prohibited. Must be 18 or older to enter. No purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. Hit Like a Girl podcast is a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. One thing I love about working with them is that they're mission-driven, which means that they're dedicated to featuring authoritative shows, hosts, and guests who take on the tough topics in healthcare with empathy, expertise, and a commitment to excellence. If you're looking for bingeable content related to the healthcare industry, they've got more than 8,000 episodes on demand waiting for you. From professional development, the patient voice, digital health, innovation and entrepreneurship, and of course, health IT, they've got you covered. So this is your official invitation to check them out at healthpodcastnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. I'm Joy Rios, and today I'm talking with Vidya Murthy, who's the COO at MedCrypt. She talks with me about cybersecurity within medical devices. And although a medical device may look like any other Internet of Things type of technology, it's constrained by regulation and must keep clinical functionality, patient safety, and care delivery as top priorities. Vidya breaks down the importance of compliance and risk reduction for any device is deployed in a healthcare setting. I really enjoyed talking with her. Take a listen. Thank you for joining me today, Vidya. I'm really excited to get to know you and learn more about your place in the healthcare ecosystem. Would you mind taking a moment to just kind of introduce yourself and what did you do in healthcare slash health IT? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me on. I'm excited to connect with the group. My name is Vidya Murthy. I am the COO at MedCrypt. Our focus is on cybersecurity for medical devices. My background is in security, so I actually never studied in security. I studied biology and accounting, but when I was interviewing off of college campus, the security people were the most interesting and, and they were generous enough to be willing to teach me. So I, I started down that path and haven't looked back since then. Okay, tell me about medical device security and why it's important. If you had had this asked this question five years ago, nobody would have said it was important. I think there's been a generation of adding connectivity to devices and us not really thinking about what that connectivity was for. So it started out with 
let's put a USB port on this thing. Let's connect this thing to the network. And it offered some interesting clinical functionality. But at some point, it kind of got to the point where we now have all these endpoints that are sending data back and forth. And we aren't really intentional about how we secure these items, nor how they work kind of collectively in a hospital setting and whether that is now a new threat to the hospital that that must be managed. I can tell you an anecdote how how I kind of got into this this space a little bit more uh, deeply. In 2014, I was working for a large device manufacturer. And at the time, we were selling to the Mayo Clinic, which is a very prestigious hospital system here. And they had decided to pen test our devices. And in 2014, people were not pen testing medical devices. It just wasn't a thing. And so they came to us. Wait, what's a pen test? Yes, excellent. It's a uh, it's a penetration test. So the idea is, how do you break into a device? So how, uh, let me try to get a way into it using kind of non traditional security approaches. So they decided to kind of test our security out by doing a penetration test. And what they found was this whole litany of things that were basically insufficient from their perspective. And they brought it to us. And we basically said, this isn't something you should care about. Like, let's focus on the clinical efficacy of this device. You're using it to treat this very, they were treating the Dalai Lama. And that's why they they had decided to pen test it. And we said, let's just focus on like giving him good care. And they said, no, 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 you don't understand. We think that your device could be a vector for a nation state to try to assassinate the Dalai Lama while he's in our care. And this was kind of this mind-blowing moment, right? Nobody historically had tied cybersecurity to patient safety. It had only ever been a HIPAA thing or making sure that we don't lose patient health information type of situation. To say that there could actually be harm to a patient was a completely novel idea. And that's kind of what sparked my interest in device-based security and healthcare security from there. So can I ask you, what was the device? What was it? There's like several devices, if we're honest. Okay. So pretty much anybody that was going to be in the OR treating the Dalai Lama got tested. So it wasn't just my company. It was probably 10 of the top 20 device manufacturers that all kind of had this experience. Gotcha. Wow. Okay. So now I'm sure it's regular practice, which and it must be, because what kind of information would a medical device hold? I'm sure identity theft, medical history, personal information about the per, you know the the human, right? What else? Yes. Why would a device ever be a target? And I think we have to think about the attacker mindset when we try to think through this problem. An attacker typically, maybe back in 2014, they were looking for a specific vulnerability in a specific device. But I think since then, there's been this maturity and this kind of promulgation of more devices in the market where now they're just looking for an endpoint. They don't necessarily care what that endpoint is or what it does from a clinical function perspective. They just want an entryway into the hospital. And there have been several instances over the last 18 months where uh, hospitals have been held for ransomware or they have somehow been shut down or they've lost connectivity to their health record system. And while no devices have been conclusively found to be the endpoint that were the vector to begin it, the way connectivity exists within a hospital system, right? If you get in through a device, you can then move across the network with some frequency. And that that becomes kind of one of those gold pots for, for why you want to get into a health system. Other reasons why you would pursue a device or why a device could be interesting as a target, if we think about the diabetic population, they actually found old infusion pump, uh, sorry, insulin pumps and glucose monitors and took an existing known vulnerability in a device to actually enhance their clinical care. 
they were saying, hey, you know, getting up at two in the morning to do calculus on how much glucose I need doesn't really work for my lifestyle. What if I could make my glucose monitor talk to my insulin pump and it could just do it without my having to monitor it? Well, they, they found a way to do that by, by exploiting a known vulnerability. So it's not, it's not all doom and gloom, right? Some really interesting innovation comes from these things. And, and you now have the FDA supporting the community as they try to build a better solution for diabetics. So when we're talking about devices, are you talking strictly about things, you just kind of alluded to it, not necessarily devices that live and breathe and like have their home within a medical setting, but also that are home with the patient and like including wearables, right? Like Absolutely. When healthcare started connecting things, it was stuff in the hospital because that was what the hospital IT had access to, right? They said, hey, it'd be interesting if we could get the data off the infusion pump and send it to the nurse's station so they don't have to get up 50 times a day. And now with the proliferation of devices going home with patients and our ability to do telehealth and that sort of thing, right? There was just a strong push for care to occur outside of the hospital setting. And so when we think about security, oftentimes the security posture of a hospital is what a lot of people rely on. They say, oh, the hospital has a great network. They have a great firewall. They're monitoring everything. They're doing all this correlation and they're figuring out what traffic looks like. That doesn't stand when you send a device home with a patient, nor does it really work with maintaining the device, right? You can't really tell a patient to flash the firmware on a device and expect them to know what that means, right? It's not like your phone where you just hit update. It's a bit more complicated than that, unfortunately. Well, so then what should patients be thinking of when they are either offered a device or even maybe purchase one outside of somebody, you know, like being prescribed, right? Like, like, like for example, I just signed up for this Ember medic, like wearable that changes your temperature. Kind of love it. <laughs> but I mean, I don't know that it has any of my personal information, but like, is there something I should be thinking about in, in using that? Yeah. So, so this is one of those worries that we all have as a community, to be honest, right? You don't want the scenario where someone turns down clinical care because they're worried about cybersecurity. The reality of an individual targeted attack to you, me, is zero, right? Like, I think it's very improbable that you and I will be the, the end target. The issue, though, is that you want customers to become somewhat aware of what this is. And the FDA has done a really good job of trying to engage the patient community. And they're currently talking about like a, a food label equivalent for cybersecurity on these types of devices. So I'm getting a pacemaker put in. Okay, well, understanding that the pacemaker has Bluetooth connectivity to a programmer and that programmer lives in the hospital. So in theory, those are the only two that are going to connect to each other. But oh, your doctor wants to monitor functionality. So we're going to put an app on your phone and then the app will check in on it. Educating patients on what connectivity exists in their ecosystem, I think is important. But it's also one of those things where IoT has become relatively common in most people's lives, right? You have connected fridges and connected thermostats. You want to make sure you differentiate between kind of the risk factor of, hey, it's your fridge that's connected. The worst thing that's going to happen is your milk goes bad. There's a very different profile if something happens with a device that you're relying on for life-sustaining functionality. Well, so for anything that is basically connected to the app store, right? Like, should people have a heightened sense of like awareness or security concerns or should they trust that hey it's apple and they're really good at, <laughs> at you know preventing any malware on any of their products 
The challenge is you don't necessarily know who's developing that app and the security considerations that they've gone through as part of what they're doing. One of the great things is the FDA has pushed what's called the pre-market and post-market cybersecurity guidance. So what they've essentially said is device manufacturers, these are the things we expect from a device that we're going to approve and what we want to see demonstrated from a cybersecurity posture. And not just before the device is out in the market, but once it's out in the market and we see it being used by people, you device manufacturer have a responsibility to actually monitor it and and see what it's doing. So if something goofy starts happening, you need to be somewhat proactive about doing something about that and trying to resolve it. So if I were a consumer and I were putting myself or signing up for a new app that was focused on health, I would at least take a moment to litmus check. Do they talk about security? And if they do, that's probably sufficient for, for what you're putting out there. I think as a society, we've become very um, laissez-faire, maybe is the term, with our data. And it's almost to the point of like, well, I get my credit card every eight months, something happens, I get a new one. It's a lot harder in the healthcare world to see why somebody cares about your blood pressure. What what does my temperature matter to you? It doesn't, right? It's often more as a vector to get into another part of your life where there there is potentially some financial reward. That makes a lot of sense. So... You had said, what did you say that your degrees were? Biology and, and accounting. And, and accounting. <laughs> yep. And I have an MBA. So okay. n- none of it <laughs> makes sense with a security background. <laughs> no, but that's, I mean, obviously it's something that you can learn. Though I've been asking everybody lately and I'm guessing I'm going to know a little bit the answer, but did you have any idea what you were going to do for work when you were 10 years old? And was it this? <laughs> Absolutely not. I was going to be a pediatrician until my third year of college, not just when I was 10. So <laughs> we, we took some uh, some hard turns there. I, I don't think this field really existed back then as a kind of recognized space, right? When you think cybersecurity, you think of someone in a dark hoodie in a basement coding away. And I think that's a fallacy because there's so much more to cybersecurity than than coding. Obviously, there's a bit of engineering that goes into it, but educating people, understanding the patient experience, knowing how people are going to interact with your system and how that could potentially impact the bias that you're building into a system. Because any, any system has some bias, right? I expect my user to do X. Okay, well, is there something I should consider with their background that makes them not want to do X or they're going to be inclined to do Y instead. So I think as a field, it, I, I didn't know that this existed. I think I've always wanted to do something that was going to be impactful though. And I certainly think the direction of the way we deliver healthcare means that cybersecurity is in fact going to be impactful for, for the for long future. And can you speak to, I mean, cybersecurity has kind of had a, had a reputation for being a male-dominated field for a while. Do you feel like you're one of the onlys or do you feel like there are plenty of women when you look around working in, in that genre? I love the question. There's this conference called DEF CON, which is uh, every summer they invite all the hackers to come to Vegas. There's uh, They claim to be the largest hacker conference in the world. And there's a whole dedicated biohacking village, which focuses on, on healthcare and kind of cybersecurity concerns around it. And when you go there, you see the breadth of people that are involved in this, whether it's the folks that are coding the device itself, whether it's the folks testing it, whether it's the people developing policy around it, the regulators there, you have the hacker community there. And it looks really diverse. When you start going out to conferences and stuff, though, that diversity somehow seems to diminish and you don't necessarily see these voices speaking up as much as they are actually involved in the day-to-day activities. I certainly don't think we've reached parity in terms of having sufficient diversity reflected in our community. And from from a security perspective, it's actually challenging, right? When you 
when you try to develop security, I kind of started talking about this idea of assumptions, right? You think your user is going to do X. The same way you think your user is going to do X, you also think, hey, the attacker is probably going to do Z. If I only consider Z because that's kind of my mental model and what I consider to be normal, am I potentially missing out on how the attacker is going to be thinking? And that's where this diversity of thought, forget all the things that are important about diversity, truly from a security perspective, if you're not having that breadth of perspective and thinking about defending your systems, it's really hard to ever come up with a sufficient solution that's really going to be defensible and, and hit kind of the majority of scenarios that you're likely going to face. So can you speak to some of the perspectives that that might include? And one thing I'm thinking of is this like comic picture and it's like a table, long, long table, it's cartoon of a bunch of like old white dudes sitting, you know, like interviewing somebody for a role and it's like a, per- a woman of color and they literally are just like, so what do you think you could bring to us? <laughs> Completely. When we look at the types of folks that are being formally asked to join organizations to focus on security, organizations are used to seeing a very traditional background. Oh, you studied some sort of security. You studied some sort of engineering. You studied something that I can tie back to the security role that we're thinking of. But if we're talking about human behavior or we're talking about how do we consider policy or what do we consider about regulations, those don't look like that background, right? That They look different. I think that's That's one of those challenges we have right now is we're looking for kind of standard, if you want to call it, definitions of what show our abilities. And we need to change away from that, especially in security, because people are drawn to security because they have a passion for it. You're not 10 years old dreaming of this, right? If you're 10 years old and dreaming of it, you're probably hacking your school's computer trying to like play Oregon Trail longer. It's, it's certainly one of those things that draws a passion from folks. And you really have to care about that, that privacy and that concern for security to really pursue it. I guess in a roundabout way, my, my answer would be, We need to move away from traditional definitions of what is success, and we need to put the effort and the time to understand different people's backgrounds and and why their experience may not be what we would look for, but still demonstrates more than enough expertise to do the role that we're looking for. I would even add, it's sometimes just cultural. Like There's a cultural difference where some people are of the mindset culturally, if something breaks, I'm going to just go ahead and buy a new one versus others that are like, I'm going to do my whatever it takes to fix it. And so that might mean a whole host of different solutions to making something work longer. Does that come into play at all for you? 100%. If you walk into a hospital, right, you have you see clinicians that have workarounds for all these, these things to, to make their life a little bit easier get the care a little bit better and patients have a slightly better experience. If we, as people who design those systems, could actually understand that, maybe we design better systems. I somewhat think it's kind of uh, symptomatic in healthcare, right? We, We constantly blame the patient or the end user. We say, hey, you didn't adhere to your prescription. You didn't do what we asked you to do from a clinical perspective. This burden lies on you. I think the same problem exists in cybersecurity and healthcare where we're constantly saying, hey, end user, you didn't change your password enough. Oh, you clicked on an email that looked really, really good, but was suspicious. Is that fair? Like, If I can't train an AI algorithm to identify that malicious email, do I really expect the person sitting in the nurse's station to be able to do it when they've got 50 patients that they got to manage? Like, I I think that's a bit unfair of us. And we're, we're doing a disservice to our people when we don't design systems that consider that. I love that. That's a really that, that's a really thoughtful response. You mentioned something earlier about redefining what success means to you. And I kind of want to just tackle that. Like, 
Have you thought about what success means to you personally and also potentially professionally? 100%. So I alluded to having an MBA. I uh, used to work for a large device manufacturer and was very much kind of climbing the ladder, focused on what we were doing there. I decided to get my MBA. And when I did, I kind of realized the potential for impact kind of directly correlates to what I do with my 40, 50 hours a week. Right. So if I'm going to be focused on solving something that's insular to an organization and, and important, I'm not saying it's not, that breadth of influence is certainly measurable. But when I consider what I wanted to do and kind of how I wanted to impact a broader population, that's kind of what brought me to startup land. So there I saw the kind of limitless potential of what you could impact if you wanted to. Right. And I think with that, when I redefined my success, it wasn't necessarily having the fancy title, having the fancy MBA, right? I'd obviously accomplished that. I now had that breath of freedom to say, what do I really want to do with all this experience and capability? And honestly, in many ways, I'm very privileged to have that behind me and get the chance to say, I'm going to walk away from it and go to this thing that maybe it lasts for three years, maybe it lasts for 30, who knows? But I want to take this bet because we could potentially turn the tide on this entire market and change things. I love that. I mean, I have actually been kind of redefining my own method of what what do I feel is success. And (laughs) part of it is really like acknowledging that my needs are met. Where I'm like, you know what? I've I've accomplished a lot of the goals I set out to accomplish. I am not swimming in debt. Like I'm able to make decisions from a place of you know, power to a degree. And it's like, okay, well, now I get to ask myself, well, what impact do I want to have in the world or what matters to me? And let me focus my attention there. And if I'm really passionate about it, I expect the universe to sort of like have this dance with me, you know, to sort of like reward for, you know, not necessarily for good behavior, but of just like, no, here's my contribution and it is of value, right? So being a uh, a quantifiable-minded person, I try to measure these things, right? Because who doesn't? I, <laughs> I, um, I basically have what I consider a spider chart. And so each leg of the spider is like a different thing that is important to me. So whether it's financial stability, family, community, whatever, right? And then I rank each one in like where I want to prioritize it. Then every quarter, I do this little exercise with myself and I say, okay, did I actually prioritize these things as I dreamed to or was I completely out of balance? And what I find most frequently is when I'm feeling burnt out or unsatisfied, there's some imbalance there, right? Either I don't understand what my priority is at the time and I'm doing something completely different or I'm spending my time in a way that doesn't make me happy. And I think just having for me at least, a quantifiable way to think about it is is very helpful to be able to force that kind of reflection and say, where do I want to focus and what will actually bring me content? And and it changes over time, right? Like prior to my child, there was a different measure. Post-child, there's a very different worldview. That makes a lot of sense. Another exercise that Robin, my business partner, and I tackle probably every six months, we call it, well, it's the 525 rule. And I think it's like a Warren Buffett exercise where you de- you write down, what are the 25 goals that I want? Like, what it, what what do I want to tackle? And then we, could, we both write our list of 25 things. This is where I want to make an impact. This is what's important to me. That This is how I would define success in this area, da, da, da. And then we come together and break it down to just five. And we see what we can, we have a top five things for the next six months that this is what we're going to focus on. And all those other things are nice to have, but until these five, or at least one, like nothing new can come onto the list until something gets taken off. And it just becomes this revolving door of goals and accomplishments. And it's worked out pretty well for us. 
I love that. And I think it's so infrequent that we invest the time in ourselves to do it for like our personal objectives. You do it at work every day, right? You know what you need to do the top five thing. Why, why don't we do that for our own time and value that kind of in the same way? And, and I, I, I love that, especially as, as a woman, there's a lot of invisible work that happens, right? And if you aren't naming that and calling it out as one of those goals that either you're trying to share with your partner or, or share in some other way, you don't do it and you don't talk about it. Well, so on that note, do you have advice or is there any lesson learned that you would give potentially to, I'm thinking like somebody who's trying to figure out what their career is going to be, a college student or even a high school student, like what would you tell them to help them hopscotch, you know, some, some challenge that you've faced? It's one of those things where everyone says, oh, find your passion, find out what you're interested in. I, I don't know that that's a feasible path these days, right? There's so much data out there and so much input into our lives. It's really hard to kind of find the noise or find the signal in the noise because there's just so much on a daily basis that we're consuming. What I would say is look for themes and things that are at least intriguing to you. If you find yourself gravitating towards solving problems or you find yourself wanting to be around people, look for these trends in your life and it'll manifest in in various places. It'll show in what you're reading. It'll show in who you talk to. It'll show in what you do with your time outside of whether you're in school or working or whatever the case may be and, and start looking for what those trends are and lean into your strengths, right? I think we often try to be the expert at everything to show that we're well balanced. I think if we started focusing on what we're actually good at and just focused on making that kind of core to what we do every day, that that overlap of ability and responsibility really changes kind of your dynamic and ability to, to feel content with what you're doing. I'll add to that. You know, we had um, where Robin and I met, we met at a, at a healthcare organization and upon hiring, they had every, every employee read a book called The Strength Finder oh, yeah. and then take a quiz. And then it gives you like the top five, what are your top five strengths? And yep. it was really nice to get those results and realize like, okay, what is it that really, I had never really done that sort of analysis before. And then also realize like, oh, how can I engage better with other people given whatever their strengths are? And just the concept of switching to focusing on what you're good at versus trying to like strengthening your strengths instead of trying to strengthen your weaknesses is actually like, it just feels better as a, you're like, oh, I'm naturally good at this. So let me kind of continue with that natural tendency and like scratch your, like build your own fire in that sense. I, I mean, it was something I really, really appreciated and have like, we haven't done it moving on, but I do like that as an idea, know that, knowing that it's out there. <laughs> but when, when I used to have a real office, I had my strength finder on my desk and it was, it's, it's such a good signal too, right? It's not just for your own awareness, but for the people around you to say, hey, Vivi is really good at X. Like when we have this challenge, we should probably go to her to, to try to get some insight into it. And it just, it helps calibrate the conversation you're having. Because to your point, right? We, we're all good at something. Mm-hmm. We, we just need to be able to find that overlap to, to find that happiness. I think. Yeah. One of mine, I I think it's at the very top is like a futurist. I'm somebody who's just like, let me look at the, like, what is the vision that I want to see and kind of work from there. And that's a lot of where this podcast came from, (laughs) which I'm like, Hey, look at that. I love it. That's it's, it's, that's the perfect overlap, right? Which is why you're, you're so content to spend your work on this. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, yeah, it has been a real pleasure spending. I mean, you're just a pleasure to talk to. So thank you. Thank you for sharing your knowledge and everything that, you know, you've got going on and just like why it is important, how people can pay attention to cybersecurity. I mean, it's not super sexy, but it's super important, right? 
Absolutely. And and honestly, I think it's going to be a trend, not just for the next five years. This is something that's going to stay with us kind of forever, right? So we, we got to start doing something more proactive about it to, to kind of move the needle. Yeah, it's not, it's certainly not going away. So if people want to get in touch with you or follow you or work with your organization, what would be the best way for them to do so? Uh, yeah, I, I'm on LinkedIn, Vidya Morthy, or just shoot me an email. It's my first name at medcrypt.com. I'm V-I-D-Y-A-M-E.com. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> <laughs> you spell it? You want to just pop it up there? <laughs> yeah, it's all included in the show notes. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, but I, I would love to connect with folks and I'm, I'm always happy to, to chat and, and help guide if there's any interest in, in having that conversation. I'm happy to do it. Awesome. Well, thanks again. This has been great. Thank you. I really appreciate it. It was a great conversation. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about us or this guest by going to our website or visiting us on any of the socials with the handle hit like a girl pod. Thanks again. See you soon. This episode is brought to you by Chirpy Bird Inc. CMS's merit-based incentive payment system or MIPS is super complex. And if clinicians ignore the program or perform poorly in it, it can result in a hit to their revenue and reputation. Chirpy Bird is proud to say that more than 95% of its clients are exceptional performers in MIPS, meaning they've maximized the score that directly translates into their Medicare reimbursement rate. Chirpy Bird offers their audit-proof services to practices of all sizes through an affordable monthly subscription that includes unlimited access to a regulatory expert who guides them in knowing what data to track, how to create workflows that make capturing that data easier, and ensures that they submit it all to CMS on time and performing at its best. Contact Chirpy Bird today or learn more at chirpybirdinc.com. That's chirpybirdinc.com.